Hi, I'm Michael and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about the 2011 film The Social Network by David Fincher, written by Aaron Sorkin. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Aran. Hello everyone. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And editor Alex Cayos. Hey. So The Social Network, when I launched the channel, it immediately became the most requested video. Mm. People in the comments were constantly saying, do The Social Network, do The Social Network. And I think it's largely because... Uh, Sorkin is probably the most famous screenwriter, I would say. Mm -hmm. I think for the same reason that I know him, you know, his writing style draws attention. Like, it's not often that you go to a movie and you pay attention to like, oh, people are talking a lot. Someone wrote the talking that's happening. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's what, you know, happens when people watch Aaron Sorkin things. And Aaron Sorkin was my favorite screenwriter. He's the, you know, that's what happened with me, basically, is watching The West Wing with my mom when I was a kid. I was like, the writing is so, like, clever and smart. And I became obsessed with it. And those were the first, like, screenwriters. Who wrote this? Uh, I hope you've seen previous episodes. Listen to episodes. for those for those who don't know. <laughs> that's Brian's impression of young Michael. Young, Sorry, yeah, a boy keep... with his voice constantly cracking. It's gonna that, be with me. That fruit was just right there. <laughs> but yeah, so I you know I remember buying you know the script books that they had like some of the best episodes of The West Wing you could buy and read the scripts and I became obsessed with them and I read them over and over again. I've watched every episode of West Wing seasons one through four at least four times some of them upwards of 10 for sure so uh it's you could say i'm uh historically have been an aaron sorkin fan and he's kind of what turned me on to screenwriting and then david fincher is also my favorite director Mm -hmm. and kind of made me become obsessed with filmmaking and what uh you know what good smart intentional filmmaking can be and so when i learned that david fincher was directing an aaron sorkin movie i freaked out a little bit and subsequently became obsessed with the movie. So it was very fun to, but you know, when people request were requesting it in the comments, I wanted to save it for a while because I wanted to, you know, do it right when we did it. But yeah, so it was the 12th video, I believe, The Social Network, and there's so much to talk about screenwriting-wise, directing-wise, all the things. But I am curious, what, what was everyone's first experience with The Social Network? Because I remember seeing it in a theater in LA. I think it was one of the first movies I saw in LA actually after moving down and sitting next to my friend who was also obsessed with Aaron Sorkin and us just being like the first scene happened and we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Aaron Sorkin movie form. And it was really exciting. But yeah, what about you guys? What were your first impressions of the social network? Uh, I also saw it in theaters and I liked it. And I think it was a movie I appreciated more on repeat viewings. Um, it, it was that weird thing where I, I like Aaron Sorkin, and I like The West Wing, and I and I really enjoy his dialogue. Um, but there are times where in the social network, like that opening scene, like I didn't have that experience of like what an amazing opening scene because I literally couldn't hear like half the dialogue mm. because like the mix was so loud with like the ambient sound and it was like mm. going so fast and it was so dense. And so there was times where it was almost like it was like showy in a way that wasn't actually like giving me the thing that is so amazing. I just thought of that. Cause you've mentioned the, you know, your impression of the opening scene the movies great. And I loved, I loved so many of the themes and the way it was shot and the music, you know, that was the first Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, so many awesome kind of new stylistic choices in that movie. And I, I do remember that on the first viewing, at least, when it kind of ended, it kind of felt like the third act kind of petered out for me. And I think it might be just be an effect of these, you know, do we decide it's biopics or biopics? Biopics. 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 
<laughs> with biopics. It's not really our decision. That's just what it is. <laughs> this is what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, I've always <laughs> read it both ways. With <laughs> biopics, uh, there's always that that kind of problem where it's just right. like reality yeah, yeah. doesn't always build to the most epic crescendo ever. You know, there's kind of the movie kind of has that, you know, that that real life feeling of just like a thing falling apart and kind of, you know, just kind of having a, a sad real ending. Um, but I remember when the movie ended the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, wait, that's that's the end. OK. And kind of mm-hmm. walking into the theater with this kind of like slightly unsatisfied feeling. Uh Anyway, it's a long description of my first viewing of it. <laughs> Basically, I had a mixed reaction the first time. And the more I watched it, the more I deeply appreciated everything about it. You know, the filmmaking, the acting, everything. Word. Brian? Uh, I was also an Aaron Sorkin fan and a really big David Fincher fan, but a massive Nine Inch Nails fan. That's what it is. <laughs> so, hey. uh, so first of all, hearing all this stuff was coming together, I, Fincher was making a Facebook movie, which seemed really weird. Um but Ridley Scott was also making a Monopoly movie at that time, so I don't know what oh was going on. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I forgot that. man, <laughs> it was a different uh, time. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then so I was very looking forward to it, very excited to hear what they they did, and I I want to talk about the score later because I know a lot about it, not surprisingly, uh, but I was extremely excited for the movie, extremely excited to hear the score. I think the score came out a little before the movie. So it was one of those experiences where when I saw the movie, I already was recognizing the cues in a way that actually helped. And I saw it once in theater with a friend and then saw it again. I think I've seen it three times in theaters, but I saw it twice when it actually came out initially. And it's, I would say social network and Scott Pilgrim are probably the only two movies I can think of in the past 10 to 15 years that I actually count among my favorite movies. Cause I think you all sort of, we all fall in love with, everything we're going to fall in love with when we're about 17. So <laughs> it sort of becomes hard after, after a certain age, it becomes hard to see something and really be blown away by it. And social sure. network is a hundred percent. One of those things that I just feel like it resonates with me in a way that most other movies I've seen in my adult life. Haven't weird. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Trisha. So a few good men is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I probably could quote whole chunks of that movie by heart. And so that's sort of like my awareness of Sorkin going into like any Sorkin movie where I'm just like longing for a few good men, basically. Sorkin as a playwright is sort of, to me, when he's at his best is when he is leaning into some of the best things about playwriting that are translatable. So, and that's like sort of everything that everybody says about Sorkin all the time. It's like, it's the really rapidly overlapping dialogue. It is the tension that is able to exist, like in a room of two people talking to each other, misunderstandings, which you reference in the video about it. All that is stuff that I just super respect and really love. And, and of course, just like a really, really smart person who is able to articulate themselves in the most incisive possible, like, it's just really brilliant. So I went into that and I actually did not, I don't think I saw this movie in theaters and it was quite a while, I think after it came out that I ended up watching it. So I had actually already read the opening scene before I had seen it. Mm -hmm. And I really respected it as a piece of writing. Just it, when you see it on the page, which I say page. How many pages is it? I think it's nine pages. Yeah, okay. Just dialogue. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And functions decently well as a short film. But when yeah. you see it on the page, it's overwhelming in how quickly it is able to you know, portray these two characters. And so there is so much about that and about the writing of this movie and about the direction of this movie that I just deeply respect and I think holds up really well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's... it's 
certainly a movie from masters of their craft at perhaps the top of their game. Like, I feel like this is, I mean, there's so many things to say about it, but I think this kind of was the beginning of modern Fincher, I want to say, where, you know, this was the first film he shot on The Red. And so he'd done Mm. digital before in Zodiac and Benjamin Button, but this kind of marks the beginning of him shooting on The Red and kind of this visual style that carried over into his, his subsequent films. So to talk about the screenwriting and Aaron Sorkin, like Aaron Sorkin is brilliant, but is also obnoxious and uh, <laughs> can, can be uh, <laughs> difficult to listen to. And I feel like in some ways, knowing as much about you know the West Wing as I did, there were moments where I, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, you've used that line before. Like that's oh, yeah, a line the from the yeah. West. Yeah. And so there, there are Sorkinisms that kind of bug me where it's like, well, do something else. And mm-hmm. I think... What I like about this film and kind of, you know, in doing research for this video, but also watching, you know, if you watch the behind the scenes documentary that they have on this, which I highly recommend, I think it's one of the best like making of ever, essentially, that really shows like this is what it's like on set. And like, this is how David Fincher worked with the actors and all this stuff. But they go into how much time Fincher spent with Sorkin rehearsing the dialogue and Mm -hmm debating and saying i don't know that we need the third fashion mm-hmm. noun in this sentence yeah. and kind of beating out a lot of the sorkinisms and i think sorkin needs that at at this point like he's become such a not a cliche of himself but he, he has his things that he leans on yeah and mm-hmm. i think he needs someone to shake him loose of that and i think fincher did a very good job of that in this film which i appreciate yeah i will say that yeah i can get annoyed by sorkinisms and i think i'm i'm definitely the least annoyed in the social network and i think he does work really well when he does he's writing very smart people who are way too in their heads who are way overthinking everything yeah and so it actually fits in the world of the story that they're talking like this and Mm -hmm. and this is a perfect universe for aaron sorkin type dialogue right so it, it works very nicely yeah, because I think one of his things is like everybody's always quoting facts when they're speaking and that doesn't make sense in every context. Like, I think that was one of the problems in uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which I really enjoyed, but was written as if it were people kind of like in the White House that were hyper knowledgeable about everything. Right. But they're it's like a sketch, comedy. It's a sketch right. show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah I, I find I just find this organism so interesting. You know, there are uh, a couple of YouTube videos that are just here's the, Sorkin used the exact same story line for line in two yeah. different things. And I have to think, is this just a guy who's writing so much he doesn't realize he already did this? Or is this someone saying, eh, people aren't going to watch the West Wing and the social network, so I can put the exact same like, <laughs> Which is weird. It's just it's just really strange to me. It's one thing everyone says to say nothing of the fact that blah, blah, blah. Like for some reason, every Sorkin character says that. Yeah. And that's weird because it doesn't give your characters unique voices. And that's a big problem with Sorkin's writing. But it's another to have to use a really important story or line yeah. or Bible passage or whatever it is to make your point twice in two different things that you wrote. And I just think that's odd. For sure. And and I think the thing that you're pointing out about, you know, his character is not, you know, kind of all speaking with the same voice. You know, if you watch enough videos about Sorkin, as I have, you know that he walks around saying the dialogue into his tape recorder. Mm. And so he's kind of always performing it. And I think once you kind of tune into that, it's impossible to hear the dialogue in any of his movies, not in his voice. Right. And I think that's kind of a big problem. And I think that's why he needs people to shake him out of right. his head and force something else in there. One yeah. thing one thing I know he focuses on is characters having different tactics. 
So this character, this is their tactic that they use. Whereas this character, this is their tactic. But he does that doesn't actually translate to the dialogue itself all the time. Yeah, it's really interesting. Also, my background is in playwriting. So I find myself writing scenes of people talking to each other and sort of follow the rule for myself in my process of let the characters talk. And that often results in like, for me, you know, it depends on what genre I'm working in, of course, but I look at the page sometimes and I'll notice that there are huge chunks of dialogue where someone is sort of monologuing because I'm letting the characters talk. I think that's an incredibly valuable part of the process. I agree, though, that you need to in honing all of your dialogue and scenes, pacing, different character dynamics, it is good to have somebody that examines every single line and goes, do we need this line? What is it serving? Why is it there? What is it speaking to? I agree with you that I feel like a decent amount of some of the most annoying Sorkin things are ones where probably no one asked him that question. Why is that line there? The other thing I know he does is right like these stutter steps where someone will start speaking. I actually really appreciate that. I think that is effective because I think it lends some amount of real world credibility to dialogue that otherwise sounds very stylized. And I think in the social network, that more than probably a lot of the other Sorkin things I can think of is where people give those stutter steps and it works for the characters because the characters are awkward and searching for words or whatever. So I think you actually do have to have those balancing things. I like those. It's just those longer stretches that are this incredibly well like phrased, but not necessarily (laughs) motivated monologue Mm -hmm. are the ones where you kind of get in the middle of it and you're just like wait what let's trim it maybe yeah but yeah all this said there's a reason why we all know about aaron sorkin and sure yeah and you mentioned this in your video michael just you know he was inspired as a kid by kind of the musicality of theater yeah Mm -hmm. and i think there is just something so pleasurable about listening to aaron sorkin dialogue where it does have an almost rhythmic musical nature that is unique and not many other people pull it off as reliably as he does mm-hmm. you know this this kind of this kind of just almost musical theatrical nature of dialogue is in in film is, is pretty rare and i think mm-hmm. so i'm trying to give him some props while we criticize well, him. no no no, right. absolutely yeah. and and what you were saying earlier which is this is sort of the perfect marriage of characters and story to that right. i fully agree with right. like if anybody was going to talk like this it's probably this fictionalized version of Mark Zuckerberg that they're trying to create. And like Harvard people. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm jumping to criticizing because I feel like it almost goes without saying how like, brilliant <laughs> he is and yeah. how movie is. When, and sort of what you were talking about, the, the musicality and the momentum and the rhythm of it, I think that's also why it's such a great pairing with David Fincher because so much of his filmmaking is in the momentum and the rhythm of the editing and the the, editing yeah the editing is insane both visually and on the sound design side so i referenced this before but in a previous life i shot videos where we interviewed sound designers and we got to talk to ren kleiss who's just like the best of the best of all the sound designers who worked on the social network and basically all of fincher's things and i feel like if you like you could just 
watch this movie and not like hear any line of dialogue and still understand what was happening just through the design mm. of the sound and kind of what you were talking about Alex about the opening scene where you didn't understand all the words like I'm pretty sure that's an intentional yep. part of it I mm. think that's also what I, I kind of like about how Fincher tackled the sorkinness of it he, like, he kind of didn't worry about you right hearing all of it. it's yeah. like maybe we don't need to know that they're talking about how many people in china take the sats and well they don't take the sats in china and blah blah, blah. like yeah. power through that we don't need to know what they're talking about <laughs> we need to know what they're feeling about what they're talking about right. mm-hmm. and just like bombard it and so there are times when there's dialogue that is mixed super low where you literally can't hear right. it and like in the club scene i feel like that's yeah, the biggest same. example right. yeah, yeah. to your point like i understood what the point of that scene was you know i, I did miss most of the dialogue right but I got what the point of the scene was at the end and I had no misunderstanding about what happened there with their relationship and how this was a motivating factor for Zuckerberg. And so, yeah, you're right. It didn't really matter what they were saying. I was more upset that I didn't get to hear the Sorkin dialogue that seemed like it was really cool, but I couldn't understand what was happening. Watching with subtitles this time, the whole mm. movie was subtitles. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was such a pleasure. Because it, <laughs> like, it was just reading the script, basically, and seeing the yeah. Sorkin dialogue right. visually. I'm like, yeah. oh, wow, I missed that. I never knew they said that. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. yeah. I think what Ren Kleist does with dialogue is what Fincher does with lighting. Um, which or Fincher and the cinematographer do it like Cronin with yeah Yeah. Um, which is if you're in the perfect environment to watch it then it's great like if you watch the movie the social network in a theater during that club scene you have to strain to hear the dialogue but in a way that makes you feel a little bit more immersed in the scene and if you're in a dark theater the dark scenes aren't going to look too dark because you're in a dark theater but you throw it on your receiver at home that isn't quite calibrated correctly with you know sunlight on or something now you can't hear or see anything yeah don't watch it on a plane (laughs) right which I think that's an interesting choice it's an interesting choice to look at like the Battle of Winterfell or something like Mm. to say if you have have the perfect way to watch this it's going to be a better experience but for the casual viewer it might be really frustrating and i think that's it's unfortunate that you have to find that balance Make those choices yeah that's yeah. tricky but it, it's also interesting you know talking about essentially what you're saying is i feel like it's a cinematic movie it's a movie that wants to be seen in right. a theater in those perfect conditions and it feels like in some ways only david fincher could take an aaron sorkin script and make it hyper cinematic in that way uh Danny Boyle did a pretty good job too. Well, so I was I was gonna say we should talk about so Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and you know that was supposed to be another Fincher Sorkin collaboration, mm-hmm. but fell apart, and then Danny Boyle came in, and it's weird because I know a lot of people really like that movie, and I have I did, a I, I did. really mm-hmm. hard time watching it because I feel like I missed the Fincherness that would have trimmed out some of the Sorkin indulgent. And I feel like, again, in the Steve Jobs movie, I feel like so much weight is put on the dialogue and we need to hear everything that they're saying and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And I don't know that it is that necessary. So I don't know. I feel like that's why I feel like Fincher and Sorkin are such a great pairing. Sure. I also feel like Fincher wouldn't have let Kate Winslet have a different accent across time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I do wonder what happened because Kate Winslet's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like I think she's like is American to start with, but then like as time progresses, she like gets an accent, like a foreign accent. I don't know. There was, some I, I think it's stuff. her character going back to her roots. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
<laughs> I bet you liked Steve Jobs, didn't you, Bri? Uh, I actually will say that I also, I've only seen it once and I sort of felt tuned out during it. Mm-hmm. So when I say Danny Boyle did a good job of making it cinematic, I mean specifically mm-hmm. right. it felt Visually. like, a, right, like yeah. a beautiful movie to watch. And uh, But yeah, I, I feel like it's a movie that I've always wanted to go back and rewatch because I feel like I should appreciate it more, but I sort of never quite felt like I was in it the, the one time I watched it. Yeah. I was expecting to strongly dislike it. And I didn't. Uh, I mean, I love Fassbender. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. Like a lot. Like a lot, a lot. <laughs> uh, and so I basically like... We've seen your bedroom wall. We know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People listen to this, Brian. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just remember thinking like, if you can, I don't know, let go of... So, and that is what I think the social network actually excels at, where it is less of a straight biopic and it's not acting like it is really like it's pretty acknowledged. This is not really Zuckerberg. This is not really how it happened. Very, very dubious about veracity there. Uh, But with Steve jobs, we were kind of expecting this was not that long after Steve jobs had passed away. We were kind of expecting, I think something more of an actual biopic rather than something hyper stylized, with very Sorkin-y sort of characterizations and that kind of thing. And I think that was a big part of it. And I, I think it had some structural problems too. I'm trying to remember. It, that's the thing. I'm trying to remember. Right, right, yeah, same. So that says something about it right there. But I remember liking it. I mean, I- It's something you touched on, which I think is interesting about a social network, about the truth of it all. Mm, of course. Is yeah. Sorkin wrote the script based on three different uh, right. stories, basically, like the, the different depositions. So he's he's said, well, there, it's true in the sense that there's a 33% chance anything that was said is true because right. everyone has their own version of the story. So I thought it was interesting for him to say, I'm going to write a version of the story based on what people have said the story is. And I think knowing that, I, there's not really a great way to get your audience to know that before you go in. But I think knowing that helps you separate Mark Zuckerberg, the character, from Mark Zuckerberg, the person. I, I've never once watched The Social Network thinking I was watching actually Mark Zuckerberg yeah, of course. You know? I think yeah. I'm watching this character that has been carefully crafted for this movie well and Rashida Jones even spells it out at the end of the movie you know she basically says I expect 85% of this testimony to be exaggerated mm. and the rest of it to be like totally falsified perjury yeah perjury mm. so it's 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 great because the end of the movie just says everything you just saw probably was exaggerated and or lies mm. <laughs> and, and that's just what we're gonna say about it yeah. it's almost like there's like like double or triple maybe like unreliable narrators happening between Mm. and it does just make for a really interesting structural like juggling of things where it's and i feel like this is a thing that i think sorkin does excel at like some of my favorite west wing episodes are when he's jumping between times and like making thematic connections across great distances and stuff yeah i love the way he structures social network yeah so smart and the way the way it cuts back and forth and when it cuts back to the testimony and it's so well done Mm -hmm. and you were pointing to uh out in the video you spent a lot of time talking about the editing of that and how just very confident it is where especially when they first reveal that we're in these deposition sequences whoo it is i don't know how many cuts just in that first like here we have two different depositions and then this third storyline that we're going to be sort of following with with a variety of characters and just this effortless but very dense cutting. It's dense. Yeah. It's, whew, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but I don't think it's distracting. Right. It, it flows. You know, that's, I think, one thing I realized watching it again recently was just how, in, even my, in my first viewing of it, I never felt overwhelmed mm-hmm. by all these different depositions. Mm-hmm. And he's even like having kind of a deposition in the past, like with Harvard at the same time as oh, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. present day deposition. Like there's so much going on at once, but I never felt like taken out of the movie or confused by it. There's some, the way it's constructed just kind of, you're just along for the ride. I think there's a lot of subtle things that we don't appreciate. There's the lighting and the set design of the two different depositions. You're never, mm. you're, there's never a question of which one you're in yeah. and that mm. kind of thing. And going back and forth from there to, uh, to the, uh, the flashback or the, the meat of the movie, the, the, the main timeline. Um, so I think I always think that with like hair and makeup and there's so many yeah. different things that you don't appreciate. There's reasons why subconsciously you're not confused right. between these two different things. Right. Well, it's interesting also how the jumping between times allows the characters to kind of react differently. Like mm-hmm. I really like the part where, you know, we're, we know that Mark is being sued by Eduardo, but then we jump to Eduardo testifying for him against the Winklevoss twins, mm-hmm. the Winklevi. The Winklevi. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's just such an interesting, like, mechanic and a way to show, like, they were friends and and the, the, it creates this kind of complexity in the character simply by jumping through time and seeing how they're reacting at different stages and all those things. Just one thing I wanted to talk about, which is a little bit of a, a gear shift, is one of the reasons I think the movie spoke to me so much is the this character of Mark is sort of this world's richest internet troll almost. And to me, like the soul of the movie is is Erica's line to him where she says, oh, uh, you write your snide uh, you write these snide things from a dark room because that's what angry people do these yeah. days. Yeah. Ooh, how prescient is that line? Uh-huh. Like- oh, I mean, that's it's funny you mentioned this because I had a note to bring this up of just how uh, relevant this movie feels today. Yeah, exactly. How it, it it's like the origin story of the era we're in now mm-hmm. of, you know, the origin of Facebook. You, you know, I think Rashida Jones at the end of the movie also says every myth needs a villain yeah. or something mm-hmm. like that. And I feel like this is kind of the, this is the myth that we need, you know, to explain our current era of all this came out of, you know, young white man who felt ang- like a repressed anger and rage and wanted to kind of come out on top however he could. And this is the way that like Silicon Valley like channels that, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, there's according a lot. According to Sorkin's. According to Sorkin's, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a myth, you know, yeah. but, it, I, but I feel like it's a very potent myth of like that kind of helps to explain the moment we're in now where it's just there's all this rage and repression and it's all bursting out you know in this new social media era and i feel like it's all contained in this movie in a really interesting way that resonated with me more now than it did back then in mm-hmm. 2010 yeah oh trisha's gonna trisha's <laughs> sighing. she's sighing yeah i really really liked this movie when it came out and i rewatched it this past week and i like it a lot less and one of the reasons, not that I think it's any less brilliant or any less well executed or written or directed or anything acted. I mean, it's spectacular. I think this movie is designed and is mostly an effective critique on the thing that you're talking about, Alex, where it's like it is a critique of this like angry person on the Internet idea. And this movie posits something basically insane but which we all just sort of like take to be the the premise of the movie which is like mark zuckerberg quote unquote got dumped 
and now wants to get back at his ex-girlfriend. So he's going to invent a multi-billion dollar company, which is a stretch. Um, but the thing that he immediately sets out to do, of course, is create face mash, which mm. is its own especially troubling thing. And then it goes on, you know, and spirals downward from there. However, ultimately, the movie doesn't bring Mark Zuckerberg down because he's terrible to women. It brings him down because he's terrible to other men. And it sort of doesn't resolve that other than, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, but like. The, it doesn't do both, though. I mean, I feel well, like, I mean, I feel like ultimately the end of the movie is. Right. He like yeah. still seeks her approval. Sure. Because that's like the last shot of the movie, right? Where he's like refreshing right. the friend. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, doesn't, she, doesn't she bring him down in the restaurant? Like, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, cause it's I feel, not the end of the movie. Yeah, but I guess like, why can't it be both? You know, why does it have to be one or the other? I'm but, with yeah. you. I, I, I yeah. why can't it be both? Right. I just am not sure that textually it is. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's using the real life story. These are mostly men who are actually involved in the real life story. So it's using uh, Erica as as a sort of framing device. But to me, the what I find so satisfying about the dissatisfyingness of the ending is dissatisfaction dissatis <laughs> dissatisfaction dis can't get no satisfaction um is that after everything after even regardless of how the deposition goes he has enough money to buy the porcelain and turn into his ping sure, pong sure. room uh no matter what he is miserable because he still doesn't have the approval of this of sort of the one person he really cared about the whole time and i, and I just think like it works for me because I like to me, it's it's like something you've said in a previous podcast, Trisha is I'm, I'm okay with characters being bad as long as they get punished for it, or as long as it's part of the theme. And I like that. I like that that character is not satisfied at the end of the movie. Uh, so that, that works for me and Trisha's glaring at me. So I'm going to, that's not a glare. <laughs> that's a look of skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. This is a question I want to throw directly to Michael. I have a similar thing. It's, I'm not, I'm not even like mad about it. I'm just, Curious, and I really want to know what you guys think. If a generation or even even a small faction, and I think this is a particularly relevant question, if people misinterpret your work, so if you are setting out to critique something, which I think this movie is a critique, if you're setting out to critique something and some people read it as a glorification of the thing that you are trying to critique, whose responsibility is that? Because I feel the same way about Fight Club. I think Fight Club is a scathing critique. But unfortunately, a lot of people have idolized the mindset and the mentality of Fight Club. And so that's my question. Who's, whose job is it to... And I, I don't have an answer. Who's, whose job is that? Whose responsibility is that? Who shoulders that burden of the fine line between critique and glorification? I mean, look at Wolf of Wall Street. Like some people watch that movie and go, man, I wish I could have all that sex on planes or whatever. But <laughs> other people That's watch what it. Should have been called right. <laughs> Sam Jackson. I was. I yeah. thought it was lobsters on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> um. But uh. But at the same time, I I watch that movie and go, God, this looks awful. You know, like I right. I don't want to. Would never want to go down this route. I would not want the positives that, that come with this for all the negatives that come with it. I find it hard to say it's anyone's responsibility to decide how the audience is going to interpret their thing. I think people are trying to make movies that are entertaining and show multiple sides of a situation, multiple arguments of a theme, and hopefully ultimately end in a way that uh, that shows what their take on the theme is, like in Social Network, where it ends with the main character not 
having gotten what he wanted, even though he became a billionaire. With Social Network, less than Wolf of Wall Street for me, I don't sense that there's much glorification built into the movie. Because I feel like even when he's riding high with Sean Parker and getting the things he thinks he wants, it doesn't it doesn't feel like very victorious to me most of the time. It feels it feels like the, it's never too far from the critique. So I don't know. I, it, it never bothered me that way. I never, I never watched Social Network and worried that somebody could mistake this for like a like success story about Mark Zuckerberg because he's just so sad and so unlikable and mm-hmm. so and I think we bitter. connect with Eduardo and I think Eduardo right yeah kind of... I never identify with Mark Zuckerberg that much in this movie like mm-hmm. he's a fascinating character but I don't I don't ever feel like I'm like excited for the glory of what he's getting out of all this yeah you do smile when he like burns somebody though right I, I identify with him but in a way where I recognize the parts of myself that are that way Hey. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, um, uh, high fidelity gets me both the book and the movie in a big bad way. Where I go, <laughs> oh, I love this character, but he's also a bad person. But also, I have those tendencies. And, and sure, think, sure. And that to me is why some movies like that speak to me so much. Is because I feel a little like the filmmakers reaching out and grabbing me by the collar and saying, "I know all your like tricks. I see you. I, yeah, yeah, I see you." And it and to me, it it is a call to action to not be this way. But not everyone's going to interpret it that way. That's true. I really want to hear what Michael thinks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question, and thank you for asking it. And I, I feel like my my thing is I don't know that it can resolve into uh, yes, it's this or yes, it's that. I think it's you know I made a short film ten around the time this movie came out uh, that I kind of intended to be an examination critique of kind of the objectification of women in the fashion industry and the mm. Photoshop and all these things, and I thought it landed in that place and a lot of people received it that way but also we had a screening at a film festival and a woman came up to me and was like why are you glorifying these awful things and I was like oh that did not land at all for this person that actually I'm exactly what I don't want to be because of that and I think as a creator it's a really good question to ask yourself at least I don't know that there is a right answer to it but I think you should definitely have that question in your head probably one of the reasons I resonate with Fincher is that I think I know that he is a smart person that I think is aware of all these things. And to me, his the way he tackles these subjects has all the nuances that make it okay. And it feels like it's exploring both sides to me. Um, but I, at the end of the day, I think whatever you bring into a screening or a movie is is going to largely influence what you take out of it also. And so, you know, you could go turn the dial to 11 and beat people over the head with it and just the right. whole movie is yeah. like satire being bad is bad mm-hmm. <laughs> or you could go the other way where it's all nuance and it's really easy to not understand the true theme and i feel like if you're not on one of those polls there's going to be misinterpretations that you can't account for and so it's kind of like i think probably do your best and make an intelligent decision about how you want what you want people to walk away from what is as objectively as possible, look at what is in your the text of your thing, and is it speaking to the right thing that you're intending? Can I talk about the score? Which you would. David Fincher is uh, has always been a, a Nine Inch Nails fan. He had a Nine Inch Nails track open seven, and Trent Reznor was going to write um, the Fight Club musical. <laughs> there was going to be a Club Fight Club musical, musical oh, boy. In, in like, yeah, the mid 2000s that Fincher was going to be in charge of and, and Reznor was going to write the music. 
And uh, Fincher started cutting the social network and he, uh, Nine Inch Nails had released a four volume instrumental album and Fincher started cutting some of the scenes to the music from this album. And he eventually just called up Trent Reznor and said, hey, do you want to score my movie? And Trent was coming off a tour and he just felt like he didn't have time. And he said, I don't know if I can right now, but wow, I'm, I'm honored. And then Trent was thinking about it. And he eventually, a couple weeks later, called him up and said, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to, uh, I'd love to work with you sometime. I'm sorry. I, I said no on this time, but maybe, and Fincher said, I'm just, I'm still waiting for you to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Atticus Ross, who is now an official member of Nine Inch Nails at the time was just sort of Trent's partner, um, has done scoring work and has scored a lot of movies on his own as well. And he called him up and said, Hey, I need you <laughs> to help me out on this. And the two of them got together and they started working on the score and, one Oscar later, they they yeah. knocked it out of the park, and now they're they just announced they're scoring a next one of the next Pixar movies, and oh, okay. yeah, oh, cool. exactly a change of pace. Uh, yeah. So now they're now they're sort of big names in the composing community, and it just makes me really happy. Created the temp music like go to for forever. Uh -huh. just put social oh, network yeah. behind anything. Well, just yeah. docu and documentary. Yeah. I've edited a lot of documentaries, and it's like the go to yeah. temp music. Yeah. <laughs> Social network. Did I ever tell you that I interviewed Trent Reznor and Atticus Frost? Somehow, the... no. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's face. Just casually <laughs> dropping that bombshell. <laughs> for for Soundworks Collection, the website that I used to shoot videos for, we did it for I think for um, uh, Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, my favorite movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we like got to go to Trent's house and like shoot an interview in his like studio, and it was really cool. Now you're just making Brian, Brian feel bad. I, know. <laughs> I, can, I can send you the Brian's footage. actually crying. Michael, stop! <laughs> I went to his house. We hung out. <laughs> we are best friends, actually. It's, it's okay. I'm just gonna text him real quick. It's okay because when I was 15, I my mom gave me an envelope uh, that I opened, and when I opened it, there were some random Nine Inch Nails stickers and all this kind of stuff. And then there was a eight and a half by 11 black and white glossy of uh, Trent Reznor that said, happy B-Day, Brian, Trent Reznor. Oh, and then you were crying. It, yeah, <laughs> it's my like prized possession. Aww, <laughs> awesome. I love it. Yeah, I mean, the music I feel like is kind of changed everything also. Definitely. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. No score has been the same since this movie came out. I just remember being so exhilarated in the, in the theater. Well, Right from the beginning of the score, over the opening credits, it was already interesting. Mm -hmm. But then the the sequence where it, it's you know Mark is hate blogging, kind yeah. of between that and dun, the dun, dun, the, dun, you know, dun, the, dun. the big the final club party, mm -hmm. it just I was like, this is different. And the music was mixed so loud and just so forward. And yeah, yeah, I just. I was exhilarated by that, and that was. It's so such happy. a cliche to say, like, the city is a character in the movie, or the score is a character in the movie. But this really is a movie where it's a bunch of people sitting in rooms talking, and the score and anything, anything else in the movie sort of has to complement that because otherwise you're just watching people talking, and it's maybe not enough to, to satisfy you or or uh, make you feel engaged. And I feel like it's another example of Fincher. Uh, making Sorkinisms cool because in the mm -hmm. script Sorkin has like different songs that he like wants to uh -huh. be playing and they're like rock songs from like the yeah. 70s and Elvis Costello like, okay sit sit down Sorkin for, <laughs> for this we're gonna let Fincher call up Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and change everything instead that, that's actually a really good point of like Fincher made Sorkin cool because Sorkin while I love him like does feel a little fuddy-duddy sometimes and just feels very 90s and West Wingy and 
it doesn't feel like he's really changed with the times. He's still just Aaron Sorkin of old. And having the Fincher, hyper-modern, kind of aggressively cool feeling on top of his dialogue was a really fun mix. Yeah. And I feel like even like things like casting Justin Timberlake yeah. in a yes. movie. Right. <laughs> like, I feel like, like that's such a weirdly brilliant choice uh-huh. yeah. yeah that's and it also ties into just really quickly because at some point when i released the video someone asked like to do for me to do like a structural breakdown but i never really watched the movie thinking about the classic structure but this time i did and at exactly 30 minutes act two begins where he starts working on the facebook uh at exactly the midpoint we meet justin timberlake and then at exactly 90 minutes eduardo closes the account and things start falling apart mm. so it's also very nicely neatly structured movie yeah. i always I both, both admire and hate when it's to the page yeah <laughs> i like it because uh, i don't know i think it works in this movie because you don't necessarily notice that those milestones that's are the going. thing right because, like, right. ordinarily when i'm watching movies in my house i will go ahead and pause it because i want to know the minute count mm-hmm. so I, I would go ahead and I'm like oh look interesting minute 29 hmm, what could be happening look at this point right and significant others love it when you do that yeah i've <laughs> noticed that yeah they're really into it um but yeah this movie it didn't those didn't strike me in the same way where right. i wanted to like sit down and pause it and and they don't it doesn't rely on some of that stuff and i think that's the structure with the depositions is what makes that work like because you have two different framing devices for this the linear story that goes from the breakup all the way through the end that part is the one that's sort of following the traditional structure but the other cut scenes in between help it help you break it up yeah you had a really good thing in the video about that actually michael where because we are cutting away to people discussing like in retrospect a scene that's happening we are able to see how they feel about it so it cuts away to like the the meeting with Sean where they're going like I thought he was arrogant. It's like oh, no, he was. And then in the scene, you can see how Eduardo is actually acting in the moment. But then you're hearing Eduardo's thoughts on it from afterward. It helps to really move that scene along, and it also gives you that perspective of like we can tell how Eduardo's feeling because he's telling us three years from now, right? Right. That kind of thing is really clever, and it, it works super well. It's almost like a way of getting narration in there yeah. without narration. Without it being voiceover. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Can we return really quick to the casting? Yes, please. Oh, yeah. yeah. I Justin Timberlake is brilliant in this movie. And I like I was reading somewhere that someone was saying, you know, he doesn't look anything like Sean Parker, which mm. I assume is true. I can't remember the last time I looked at a picture of Sean Parker, but I assume <laughs> I assume he doesn't look like Justin Timberlake is all I mean. But he his aura, like just this confidence and the swagger that Justin Timberlake gives off is really brilliant. They always say in like screenwriting, like, oh, you always introduce your main characters in the first several pages or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like some of the best movies, they have that one other character. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. doesn't show up until mm-hmm. like the second act or it's something. Kind of like Ocean's Eleven with yeah. Julia Roberts. You don't yeah, say, exactly. oh my God. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's so funny you brought that up. Yeah. Sorry. No, and then Max Minghella, I actually really like too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm more familiar with him from The Handmaid's Tale recently, but he's great in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He provides that sort of like third voice where the Winklevosses become sort of Winklevi. <laughs> <laughs> 
become like an echo chamber unto themselves and he is able to sort of like inject into that and speak right. into that but also in it's really so much fun way. to watch army hammer yeah himself. hard agree so much fun <laughs> yeah of course and i like that josh pence got to play the guy who's like trying to use the bathroom at the one point yeah, it's like they, yeah, they yeah, snuck yeah. him in there a little yeah. although all, real quick like casting aside i do think it's so funny how when fincher makes a movie that doesn't have a lot of room for cg he still finds a way like zodiac he's like i i erased the entire san francisco skyline and replaced it with seven and social network where there's no reason for there to be any cg let's have the twins be the same person with some face replacement let's have it be cold, so cold outside you can see the cg oh, you know, the breath, breath does not age well it i know no. yeah i was really aware of that yeah yeah, yeah. i also love Joseph Mazzello, who is just somebody I want to call out in this the, movie. The Tim. Jurassic Park. Timmy. Yeah, Timmy. Timmy. <laughs> so I always love the part where you know Mark's doing the blogging at the beginning and they like toss the like dart, dart and he catches it and cup, just the look yeah. he gives him is so much fun. Because I, I think that was actually uh, sort of just happened accidentally almost. So that was just kind of his natural reaction was just. Joseph Mazzello is the best at pulling faces mm. because that's just what they have him do in Bohemian Rhapsody, basically. <laughs> oh, interesting. I didn't know he's in that. He plays John Deacon in yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. And the the character is very quiet, but also like he, they just don't, you know, they don't need him to say a lot, but they cut to him a lot. And he's always just over there like they cut to everything a lot. <laughs> like His eyebrows quirked his face like, huh, yeah. all of you people are insane. All right. Right. Or, yeah, he makes anyway, some good faces. He's, he's also network. great in this. Yeah, yeah. I also yeah. went to a um, a screening of the Social Network with Andrew Garfield. Cue Trisha saying, "Of course you did." Um, <laughs> <laughs> or not? What <laughs> you went to a? Screening. I went to a screening. And it goes without saying. At yeah. This point. Um, and uh, and he was actually he read for Mark, and he was actually originally wow. supposed to play Mark. But Fincher said, uh, he, you're so good at wearing your heart on your sleeve. Yeah, I don't want is. you to play this emotionally reserved character. He said the worst thing about not getting to play Mark wasn't that he wasn't going to be the main character of the movie, but was that he wasn't going to get to ride the zip line. Oh. <laughs> Which in the script, Mark was actually, right. yeah. And then Jesse Eisenberg actually said, I don't think Mark would be having this kind of fun. No, so they cut yeah. it so he doesn't do it. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't get to ride the zip line. Anyway, no one, but, you know, no one got to ride the zip line. Well, someone did. Actually, I think it was probably Joseph. Azzella. I think it was. It was one of the two of them. Well, that's why, you know, again, talking about the the documentary, the making of, they, they talk about all this so much and you really get to see Fincher working with actors and yeah. his approach is really interesting because in some ways he gives the actors a lot of room and, you know, he's asking, oh, what's his name? You said of Joseph Mazzello? The other one. Andrew Garfield? No, the, the, the friend of the, Winkle, the Winklevoss. Oh, oh Max Minghella. Right. Yes, a... yes, yes. Divya. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Divya Rinchak. The yeah, other, other one. That's the actor. He has a character name as well. Yeah. But like there are times where, you know, you see him, Fincher asking Max, like, do you think this would be happening? Would you have a newspaper here? And like giving them, you know, lots of agency and getting, letting the actors make choices. But also at other times you see him almost giving line readings, and which is kind of mm. generally a no-no. And so it's just interesting watching the way he works because Fincher is so detail oriented, seeing the places where he really cares about these details happening, but also the places where he lets the collaboration like thrive. How many takes for the first scene, Michael? 99. Mm -hmm. Mm. Now, now, to be clear, that's across all the setups. It's not like they did like one setup 99 times. So they did 99 takes in a night, which I don't know is even that crazy. Yeah, there's, a, there's probably a lot of setups in, in that. And he yeah. shoots two cameras, and so you're getting both sides. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot. That's I mean, why he likes to shoot on digital. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. But it shows. He's exacting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I meant crazy in a positive way. 
Hey, listeners, Brian here. Just wanted to take a quick moment and thank you for listening to Beyond the Screenplay. If you like the podcast, we'd really love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to grow the show and get more guest episodes with writers and directors. Also, if you want to help us to continue to make these episodes, you can become a patron on Patreon. For $2 a month, patrons get extra mini episodes and patron-exclusive Q&As. I know what you're thinking. For $2, I could buy 200 pieces of penny candy. But let me tell you from experience, that's too much candy. All right, back to the episode. Cool. So why don't we go around and talk about what lessons we're going to extract from uh, the social network. Brian, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, we touched on the the nonlinear storytelling a little bit. And I wrote a an adaptation of Albert Camus' The Stranger, mm. uh, the novella. And I set it in present day LA and surrounding areas. And the interesting thing about that book is the first half of that book is entertaining and a lot happens and then a thing happens at the midpoint and then the second half of the book is all prison and courtroom scenes and dry and talking and that kind of thing so i started thinking well how do i structure this as a movie do i make the midpoint be the end of the second act so at least we're now we're only one act and i kind of quite wasn't sure what to do and then i saw the social network where you have all these depositions that happen later and they're cutting in as mm-hmm. these scenes are actually happening as they're talking about this stuff. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. What a, what a cool choice. And I think there's a, there's a perfectly fine version of the social network that doesn't include either of the depositions, you know, that's just here's the, here's the, the beginning to the end of the plot and that's that. But I also think that in that movie, it's a really, as you talked about, a handy way to write exposition yeah. where you're instead of, you're, you have conflict in those scenes, but also those scenes are talking about what's actually happening what happened at the time and how different characters felt about it and what their, you know, what their intentions were at the time. And, um, and it's cool. And I also like that they don't, those deposition scenes don't slow the movie down. You're not, Oh, it's a deposition scene. I'm going to go (laughs) refill my drink or something. It's, they feel just as present and and relevant as the rest of the movie itself. So I just think, yeah, it's a really interesting way to do nonlinear storytelling in a way that doesn't feel like you're, trying to be cool with like I'm showing this scene here even though you should see it later it doesn't feel like that it just feels like we're we're watching these two depositions as we're also watching the the movie itself mm-hmm. yeah. totally cool Alex so when I watch this movie and I know we've kind of we've been talking about different interpretations of this movie mm-hmm. um, but watching it again for me I was even harder on the side of just like this is a movie about like a deeply wounded person actually you know mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg the you know the mythical version of Mark Zuckerberg in this movie is a very sad character to me, you know, very wounded character who has an ego that desperately wants to feel bigger and feels like he's not you know, succeeding in the places that make him worthy, you know, so he can't keep his girlfriend. He can't get into a final club and every, everything in the movie, when he reacts to Eduardo's success, you know, getting recruited into a final club, it, there's so much like, um, woundedness in his reactions to it he just immediately has to make a snide remark or some kind of a comment that kind of puts down Eduardo's success just to make himself feel okay yeah and it just showed me like oh it's you know that's something really good to design in in like an anti-hero character um just you know make them deeply wounded and have that really be the driver of all their behavior you know if they're acting badly it's because they're desperately trying to make themselves feel okay because Mm -hmm. they just inherently do not feel okay and that really came through for me in this viewing and those scenes where he makes those cutting remarks at eduardo are 
awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's probably just a diversity hire. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Like, oh, that's great. Don't feel worse if you don't make it further. Yeah. Right. And the way it's delivered Ugh. by Jesse Eisenberg. Garfield. Yeah. It's just so <laughs> brutal. Yeah. yeah. But but I but what I love about the way yeah Jesse Eisenberg plays that character is that it just you can tell there's just so much pain inside. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so my lesson has to do with what we were talking about earlier about misunderstandings. And one thing I really appreciate about Sorkin dialogue in general, but especially in this movie, is the amount of like back and forth where someone has moved on this. And this is like a large part of the video uh, that you did about it a couple of years ago, Michael. And just this people so frequently don't understand each other. And using that to create this, the sense of like leaning forward. If the, if the character himself or herself has to lean forward in under, in order to understand, then the audience is doing that same thing where when that first scene we're with Rooney Mara, we're with Erica, right? Where she's like, you're eight, you're talking about two different things. I don't know which one you're talking about. It's so critical for that line to be in there because that is exactly like the audience needs some kind of a guidepost, <laughs> yeah, something to okay, hang on to. It's okay to. that I feel this way. Right. right now. <laughs> I, like I feel lost, but it does create that sense of think about how annoying that scene would be if they perfectly understood each other. Yeah. Like, right. It would just be this really annoying, heightened reality nonsense mm-hmm. that is totally unrelatable. But the misunderstandings are what sort of bring it down into this like sphere where we can grasp at it and creates intrigue for us for what is essentially an expository scene. And, and Sorkin does a really effective job at that throughout. And that's like sort of, you know, one of his classic techniques. And it's in in great effect in The Social Network. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like my lesson ties directly into that. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, me and two of my actor friends, they wanted to practice doing scenes. So they were like, let's do the opening scene from the social network. And I was like, all right, cool. I mm. think I know these friends. I think you do too. Mm-hmm. Um, hi, Mikey, Marissa. Hi, guys. Uh, <laughs> but so for like, you know, once a week for a couple of weeks, we would meet up and I was basically directing them doing the scene. And it was a really cool exercise to dive into this extremely dense Sorkin scene and it's just it's such a fun challenge to try to pick apart line by line what is the subtext what is Mark responding to he's talking about this thing four Mm -hmm. lines earlier and she's also confused and she's trying to talk about what she was talking about two lines earlier and all this stuff which is kind of what's what's in the video but it was a really interesting exercise to just kind of take Sorkin apart and see what he's doing like it's not just people talking quickly there's so much right. more happening right. yes, there absolutely and so yeah. diving in taking it apart piece by piece so you could put it back together and then explain it to somebody else was a really really good exercise so and let me tell you i really appreciated your video because oh. i was mm. like oh that's what was happening <laughs> in the first scene disclaimer none of us worked on the channel at that point right. we were yeah. just fans so we're not plugging ourselves right. we're just plugging michael we're not going what a great video we did, we did. Yeah. yeah michael did it like it, was yeah. like, it was like color-coded by like what topic they were on mm. and yeah the yeah. subtitles were, is was... that while you were working on the scene with our friends it was after i think oh, okay. it was shortly yeah. after but, but it was yeah like, i I have a mastery of I when I still watch it I'm like I know every line of the scene and yeah. that's kind of insane. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's maybe something we tend to only do or we think of as like we as screenwriters think of as being the director's problem. 
But I really feel like maybe it should be something we think about more as being our own problem. Like if I were going to direct my own actors through this scene, how would I like break it down and help them understand what's tracking with what and like what the internal like thread is. And actually being able to articulate that too is a really important thing. As someone who's a very instinctive writer, I think that that exercise of tear the scene apart, these two people are talking to each other, what are they talking about really is really helpful. And because Sorkin gives no help, like there's no, it's just dialogue it's on dialogue, the page. Yeah. There's no action lines or anything. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good challenge for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, why don't we go around and talk about what we've been watching recently? Why don't you start, Michael? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> Game change. So I've recently been watching the new season of Glow. Uh, and it's been interesting. I feel like kind of tying back to, I talked about Big Little Lies uh, as a show I've recently watched. And what it's it's the multiple seasons later thing where how do you continue a thing now that you're outside of the, the thing that made the show great in the first point? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, because the first season of Glow, you know, there are these struggling actresses that get this chance to be like wrestlers and it's kind of them taking the power back and season two kind of you know enhances that uh but it's season two kind of ends that arc in a really like nice satisfying way and so season three i'm still in the first half but it's it's kind of weird seeing them try to generate new conflicts outside of the kind of structure that they built for the first two seasons so i feel like i'm i'm learning a lot from these tv seasons that are like interesting and not quite amazing but still good enough that i want to keep watching them there's just a lot of lessons to extract and i love the cast and it's, it's still just a lot of fun so mm-hmm. I, I do recommend watching glow nice yeah alex uh so i've been watching euphoria on hbo all right um Man, it's a it's an intense show. <laughs> it's uh, intense is probably the main word I would use for it. Uh, but the filmmaking is really remarkable. Um, definitely, really. I mean, basically, if you don't know what it's about, it's just like the most intense show about Gen Z you could possibly make. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a Requiem for a Dream Gen Z. <laughs> so, I mean, oh God! But like a lot, <laughs> but a lot more fun than Requiem for a Dream. I'll put it that way. Um, but the cinematography is absolutely incredible. Amazing, like kinetic energy. Um, in every one of the episodes the music is awesome uh, and it's all you know the director writer is Sam uh, Levinson um, and I just think he's a really unique incredible visionary you know as far as what he did with this I think it's eight episode just basically film mm-hmm. um, and all the actors are amazing I mean there's a lot of these this really young cast and they're like across the board amazing actors um, how do you say her name? Zen- is it Zendaya? Zendaya. Zendaya. <laughs> Although we have a friend that, that worked with her that said it's Zendaya. Zendaya. Oh, all right. Okay. Let's go with that. I'm not young anymore, so I don't know all like the hip young people, but she's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I would just if you're okay with some kind of shock value content, you know, it's it's HBO being like, look how far we can push everything. Um, if you're okay with really intense content, um, it is worth watching for the filmmaking, I believe. Nice. Nice. I, I, I am waiting for the day when uh, at the Oscars, Tommy Lee Jones comes out in the tux and has to say, and the uh, award for supporting actor, the nominees are Zendaya, Aquafina, Lady Gaga, <laughs> yeah. Honey Boo Boo, and Princess Consuela Banana Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be exactly. amazing. I'm really yeah. excited for that. I can't wait for yeah. 2028. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brian, what have you been watching? We we gave Trisha Mindhunter, so I, I, I will say that I did watch Mindhunter in a day, and I will. Okay. Yeah, I'll let Trisha talk about it, but you watch it in a day? Oh yeah. Maybe you should I, get to talk. about I, it. I don't want to talk it about it. It took me three days. Okay. Okay. Well, I I mentioned this uh, on the channel that I don't want to talk about Mindhunter because I feel like just talking about the experience of watching it is a spoiler. <laughs> Okay. Like the, the emotional experience I had watching the second season, I don't even want to say what that was. So it's like, I can't really talk about Mindhunter. So I'm not going to talk about Mindhunter. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, what I will talk about is much more fun. Uh, I've been watching the uh, third season of Daredevil. Uh, wow. Which, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed what the what Marvel did with the Netflix universe that they created. I, I like I think the tone of that universe is more up my alley than the MCU, even though I really enjoy the MCU. Uh, I like the sort of darker, more adult, a little more R rated kind of tone. And the second season of Daredevil, I thought was fine. It kind of didn't care. And this season seemed to have been bringing it back a little in a way that I, um, that I like. And, and I'm kind of sad that it's over. I wish they had done something more they were trying to build to the Defender show and that wasn't very good, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So I, I wish they had done more with it. But uh, but yeah, I, I am catching up on that. I'm going to catch up on Jessica Jones. And, uh, and I just think it's a, an interesting experiment and I'm, I'm glad it exists. So, yeah. Great. Right. Mm. Trisha, take us home. It's Mindhunter. Ah. I mean, wow. I really love that show. The second season is amazing. Mm -hmm. I felt... I, I was compelled by the first season, but not hooked in the mm. same way that the second season really, really got me. I'm and excited I, now. I think a big part of the second season, I don't want to give it too much away, but um, I'm not even going to remember the character name. It's the one that's not Holden. What's his name? Bill Tench. Tench. That's right. Holt McCallany mm. uh, is the actor. Bill Tench. That's his partner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's his partner. Yeah. And Tench has this, most of the second season, I would say, is about Tench. Mm -hmm. Like... There are, He's more the protagonist. There's the things with Wendy. There's things with Holden, but it's really about Tench, and it's so good. Like it raises all of these moral questions about. I feel like the first season, you know, is is largely about Holden and the way that Holden sort of relates to these serial killers and these like anomalies, essentially in human nature, and Holden's sort of relationship to them as being somewhat anomalous himself. But the second season really focuses on Tench, who is a normal guy. He is not anomalous mm -hmm. in the way that Holden is. He is just out there trying to do his best in a situation that and like it's all enwrapped in his family life and it's all enwrapped in this new case it's not too much of a spoiler to say a large chunk of the second season is about the atlanta child murders which is something i know a lot about and is a fascinating case of a serial killer and so basically tench's personal life as it relates to sort of like this ongoing chase of the atlanta child killer is really compelling and holt mccallany in it is amazing mm. his performance is just awesome so i really appreciate the almost risk i want to say to veer like almost shift a main character mm -hmm. in the show i i think it's such a bold choice and i think it works so well because honestly tensions may be more relatable than holden sure and so like, putting us yeah. in the seat putting us in the chair with tench is 
a really smart, interesting choice, and it works super well in season two. And it's just it's moody as hell. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's I really can't wait good. to watch it. Yeah. Although I, I hope that means season three, Wendy gets to be. I know that's exactly what I'm she's hoping. She's a little mm. like she fades into the background in season yeah. two. But I'm hoping if season one is Holden, then season two is Tench. Then yeah. I'm hoping season three yeah. is Wendy because yeah. her plot line in this season is interesting. There just isn't that much of it. Right. Yeah. So I'm hoping they really like give her a lot more to do in season three. But it's also just like gorgeously shot. It's so dark, so like Fincher. lighting, yeah. like so dark, and you can't see half of anybody's face. <laughs> like no one ever turns on a light ever, you know. Like it's really great, really great. Yeah. Uh, I will say as a as a sort of warning to people in this room and people listening, if you don't know, uh, like I made the choice not to Google anything oh. about the case that they're investigating because I wanted to be, I, I wanted the show to tell me about it, and I will I will say don't look anything up. Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you're if you don't already know a lot about it because i had listened to the marvelous podcast about it which is called atlanta monster mm. if you haven't listened to that podcast and don't know much watch the show first, first. yeah sure yeah. it's like the opposite of once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. that <laughs> oh boy uh, awesome that's really i'm excited to, I'm, maybe i'll do that tonight you but, really should yeah i should cool well this has been our conversation about the social network thank you all for listening and we will see you in the next episode adios Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.